This is a Lip Media Podcast. Deviant women, deviant women, deviant women, deviant women, deviant women. Deviant Women! This is the podcast where we talk to you about deviant women from history, mythology, literature, and contemporaneity. My name is Lauren. I'm Alicia. Welcome to the podcast. I'm back. Boom! You're back! You're back! Here I am! From outer space. I just walked in to find you here with the... Stop it. This podcast set up ready to go (laughs) and record. Yes! That's what happened! (laughs) Yay! Yes, indeed, I have been travelling. Welcome but to Australia. Back. Thank you. I'm very happy to be home. Travelling, you know, it wears you out. It, it does. It, you get weary. <laughs> you get weary. I thought you were going to say you get weird, which is also true. You also get weird, but places you're in get weird yes. too. <laughs> but you know what? It was a it was a weird trip. It was half a honeymoon uh-huh. and then half a strange. An athletic spectacular. It was, it was a spectacular. Do you know? Okay, right. Okay. Let me just can I, let me just get personal for, for some time here. Good. Is that okay? Yeah. I'm okay with it. You know, I, I don't open up much on this on You're this show. You're a closed book on this show. I am. I don't like to give away too much about about my personal life, but I think it's time to to just admit that I you know You're married. I'm married. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So you know who is this mystery man? <laughs> this who is this this person this behind the Clyde scenes? Clyde to my bonnie. This yep. Laverne to my, no, no, the no, Laverne to your Shirley. Shirley. Yeah, surely sure. you'd be the Laverne to my Shirley. <laughs> That's true. I feel like you'd be the Laverne to my Shirley. Thank anyway, you. um, look, it's it's Josh. It's Josh. It's just it's just Josh. His name is Josh. It's just yeah, just Josh. Look, the point of the story is, <laughs> there's a point to the story. Josh and I have been together for a long time, too long, ten years. That's too long. Um, <laughs> but when I first met Josh, he had just started work as a firefighter, which is the dream man. <laughs> it is. So I feel like next I progressed to a pilot, and, and then, then eventually an astronaut, an astronaut, astronaut yeah. Mike Dexter. That's right. So yeah, husband <laughs> number two will be a pilot. Husband number three will be Mike Dexter. It's good. Great. Yeah, you're on the trajectory. I am on the trajectory. It's a good trajectory to be on. But the point of the story is that every two years out there in the world, for those who don't know it, is this weird fucking thing that happens <laughs> called the World Police and Fire Games, which is basically the Olympics for, like, emergency services personnel. Which, it's, hey, look, they do so much for us. It's only fair that we can <laughs> witness them. in spectacle their athletic prowess. It's a weird thing. <laughs> and, I, look, due to conflicting travel itineraries in the past, for some reason I've never managed to go to one. Josh has been to quite a few. And this was the first year that I actually got to go to one. And he's explained it to me before, <laughs> but you just don't really know a thing until you're there. <laughs> and it was... It was strange. <laughs> it's just pure strange. So strange. But it was also really quite entertaining and he did win a gold medal. Woo! So for the dodgeball. For dodgeball. Which is a sport in the World Fire and Police Games. It is actually now my... Sorry, f- Police and Fire Games. Police and Fire Games. Sorry. It is actually now my favourite sport. It's really entertaining. <laughs> I highly enjoy dodgeball. Um, so congratulations to, Good job to him to and to all the who, team to all who competed and won and just didn't even win, just turned up. Everybody um, who participated, everyone who gave you're it a all try. our heroes. You sure are. But anyway, so that was a lot of fun. And actually, it also means now I've been to thirty countries. Wow, thirty. That's a lot. It is a, it's it's many a lot. countries. I set myself this arbitrary goal of going to sixty countries by the time I was sixty. Wow, well, so, that makes sense. You're halfway there. I'm halfway there. Well, actually, in age, I'm more than halfway there. Yeah, but also you didn't have that much autonomy to start traveling when before I was like you were a small child. Exactly. Yeah. So there you go. So that's it. That's where I've been. That's the mysterious place <laughs> I've been. And that's why you haven't been around for the last two episodes. Well, kind of one and a half because you were in our Laura Elizabeth Woolard, Carolyn Layton episode. True, I was. But you've been doing a good job in my absence. Thank you. So well done. And the Wendy Carlos episode with India was fabulous. And you know what? For our Patreon listeners out there, it even carried over into this month's Patreon content. It did because we continued the theme of pioneering female 
electronic musicians with... Delia Derbyshire. Yes. A name that may be familiar to a few of you, but if it's not, then I'm not going to tell you any more about it. You just have to listen to it oh, on Patreon. But, oh, but... Or you might just Google it, yeah. I suppose. But maybe you should come to Patreon. Hey, that's hey. another option. So um, that's not where we are this, no. this episode, though. No. No, we're going to go somewhere very different. We are. So... I have some leading questions for you, Lauren, to transition. Okay. I feel out of my depth very suddenly, but let's, okay, try me. Yeah, let's see how this goes. Let's see how this goes. Try it on me. Question number one. Mm. Mm. Name some very internationally famous female sportswomen, not including Serena Williams. Sharapova. Good. And... That soccer woman <laughs> who recently became very famous. Okay, see, this is not your fault, Lauren. This There's is that not your fault. Elise Perry, the cricketer, and... <laughs> You're doing very well. You are doing super well. Dawn Fraser. <laughs> good job. <laughs> not so current, but good job. So, right, this I is felt the like thing. you put me under a lot of pressure. I, I did. I swear I know more than that. No, but the thing is... is <laughs> No, I did put you under pressure and I don't know any more than that either. I mean, okay, granted, neither of us are particularly huge sports people. That is true. But this, I think, extends beyond just that, Mm -hmm. right? And the point of the fact is you ask anyone on the street, they will name you, uh, they can list off a bunch. They can list off off at least 10 really famous international superstar male sports people, obviously. More than 10 for sure. More than 10. Uh, maybe at, at least me. 17. Lots of people could. I probably couldn't. <laughs> I would probably get lost after two. But this is the point, isn't it? Female athletes, uh-huh. right? They're just, they're not on the global radar. No. Oh, yeah. In I mean, in certain sports, like I guess, you know, like tennis, for example. Yeah. Well, that's it. But, you know. And... Mainly, I think, in individual sports. Yes. Team, cause, because female team sports are, are not valued as highly as male teams, which sports. I think is starting to change. We're seeing Definitely. incremental change. I think, particularly when I say in... that, I mean like not valued by me. Like clearly, <laughs> clearly, I value them. I'm not talking from my personal but point we, of view. We do have things like the AFLW, yes, which are becoming really big and very successful, and are platforming women in Australia's biggest sport, which is AFL football. For those who are not from Australia, but otherwise, yeah. I mean, hey, look, also, though, the Australian cricket team, the oh, women's cricket yeah. team, are exceptional and do very, good. very well. Yeah. But about team as well. But about three people come to each match. Yeah, so, there you, go. you know. Yeah. So, yes, that wasn't just to put you on the spot. Uh-huh. That was just to, st- to start us thinking about this conversation around sportswomen. Yeah. Right? And I think we've only done one sportswoman before on this show. Oh, we, the in, wrestler. Yeah, we've done Irma Gonzalez. Uh-huh. We've done a couple on Patreon or maybe one on Patreon. One on Patreon. But, yep. again, you know, Lauren and I are not the sportiest people in the world. No. But, hey, that's remiss of us. That doesn't mean we can't bring them into the show. No. Clearly. So, but there is definitely a bias towards writers and artists. There is such a bias. We have, look, hey, humanities. Um, so question number two for you. Oh, God. Okay, here we go. Ready? How are you at pool? Uh, it depends how many beers have I had? That's correct. <laughs> That's so, is it? There is a fine line between like, for me there's a fine line between like three or four scotches yes. where I'm like fucking genius. Exactly. Uh, my sweet spot is two to three. Mm-hmm. Two to three drinks. Yep. I'm in my sweet spot. Yep. Less than that and I'm probably not confident enough mm-hmm. to, to pull it off. More than that, well, obviously, you're just getting sloppy. You're a flailing mess. That's right. Yeah. After like five squatches, I can't, I can't play. You ball. need to lean on the table to steady oneself, you know. Mm-hmm. You, you got no hope of snookering the ball then. No, you've had too much by that stage. That's too much. Yeah. But this, right, this is why it's so impressive that people are really good at this sport. When they're sober. When they're sober. <laughs> I love that that is actually where you were leading me with that question. Yes. You assumed that I would answer that question. I with knew it. An alcoholic response. I did. That's exactly <laughs> because I think that for many of us that you go to the pub, you yeah. have a few drinks, suddenly you're a pool shark, right? That's correct. Whereas actual pool sharks. They're already pool sharks. They're already able to they do it. They don't need to drink anything. That's right. And, and they, in fact, pretend to be drunk <laughs> to trick you. To hustle it's you. It's the hustle. That's right. So that's where we're going today. We are going into the pool parlours. Of the world. The Mate, sh- I did actually spend a lot of time in particular pool hall in my youth. 
Did you? Yeah, well, yeah. So I mean, did watching, I actually. watching the boys play pool really. Oh. Like, look, okay, I played a little bit, but mostly I was there watching boys. Mm. Did you ever have those moments where you just did that really genius shot that, like, saved the game? Yeah, I guess yeah. so. I have a couple of those moments in my life that are, like, core moments yeah. of glory. Yeah, especially, like, to. when you're playing doubles and it's, like, you and your boyfriend. And or friend. Or friend. Yeah. In the, my <laughs> case, or in Lauren's world. This me and my story. boyfriend. Yeah. And you like, you feel like you suck and you're just bringing the team down and you're like, how will he ever forgive me? <laughs> and then, and then, and then you get a fucking streak and yeah. you're like, boom, boom, yeah. boom. Yes. See? Come back. Thank you. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about n- nothing to do with the person from today's episode yet. <laughs> Who are we talking but about? But we are talking about Masako Katsura or. Because she's Japanese, Katsura Masako, as you often would say. You should say the surname first. Mm -hmm. So she is a billiards champion. She is a total pool shark and she is the focus of today's episode. Good. So I'm glad we got there eventually. Good. (laughs) Good. So that's where we're going to go today. We're going to go to the world of billiards. Billiards is a little bit different to the pool that we would play in the pub. Yeah, it is. Actually, there's... It's quite structured and there's a lot of rules. It's super difficult yeah. as well. So, look, we'll we'll come to that. But we'll, we might start a little bit with some of Katsura's story because mm-hmm. uh, really all we've done at the moment is talk about pool. So it's probably yeah. time we talk a little bit about her. Okay. All right. We've been so, setting the scene. We have. We've set the scene quite sufficiently, I would say. So... This story is going to take place in Japan and the US and uh, it's going to do that by way of a lot of tangential information. Okay. So just get, <laughs> get prepared for that. So we're going to start in Tokyo in 1913, which is, of course, the year that she was born. Yes, that was a leading question. <laughs> you answered it correctly. I was like, what else happened in 1913? <laughs> I don't know. Good answer. It yes. was the year before the Great War. Well, yes, it was. So, but that. First World War isn't going to play much into her story, but the Second World War may mm, well. Well, so yes. I mean, mm, we'll yes. see where that goes. <laughs> so there's not a hell of a lot of information about her really young days, about her youth, but we do know that she was ushered into the world of billiards shortly after her father's death. She was only about twelve when he passed away. Oh. So, but she went to live with her younger sister and her husband, who quite usefully owned billiards well not only played billiards <gasps> but he owned a billiards parlor wow handy yeah that is so handy I mean, that is how you grow up playing billiards it, that's pretty it? much like, it that's pretty much it so as you can it's imagine like when you have that one uncle who owns a pool table and your cousins are really good at pool yeah yeah and you're not yeah and then when you go to your cousin's house you just lose all the time are you speaking from experience again? Does it sound like I'm speaking from feel, experience? Feel like you feel like you're a little bit jaded. About anyway, that experience. sorry, please. Continue. Look, when we're rich and famous, we'll, we'll buy have billiard we'll buy a billiard table, yeah. and then we'll get amazing at it. But for the time being, we're not. But as you can imagine, living in this particular scenario led to her, of course, beginning to learn the ropes of the game. So she'd practice every day on the tables for two hours before the parlour even opened. And then when the parlour opened, she'd play the men that came in for hours on end, basically. Mm. Sometimes, so she said, six or seven hours a day. That is a lot of practice. You've got to get good at something. That is professional athlete level practice. No wonder she became one of the best billiard players in the world. Precisely. So it didn't take her long before she'd learned some pretty neat tricks and honed her skills and technique down to a fine art. So billiards, maybe we should actually back it up and then talk a little bit about what billiards itself was, right? Just so, yeah, frame it. Frame it. And we'll have to apologise to anyone that actually plays billiards Mm, for this simple... You can just skip ahead 30 seconds a couple of times. That's right. And also if we're getting it wrong, then... You can just... They've skipped ahead. Yeah, they're they're not even listening. Ahead. So, of course, because I asked you about pool before yeah. and snooker, but that's that's a little bit different mm. to billiards. So the first thing that's different with billiards is that it's played on a table that doesn't have pockets. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't Look even, at your face. I didn't even 
know that. That seems like really crucial information. It's pretty. I mean, you can play it on a table with pockets, I suppose, but that's not the point. But the point it's is not, not about sinking. It's not about sinking the ball. Yeah. Right? Okay. Exactly. So what the fuck? Gee, it shows what I know. Yeah. What the fuck I hear you say? <laughs> table without pockets. So what's the fucking point of it then? Well, the point of it <laughs> is to score points, right? Yeah. And the way that well, one would think, obviously, yeah. Standardly, and this is Karom billiards. I don't mm. even know if I'm saying that right or if it's Karom billiards. So it's actually <laughs> usually only played with three balls on the table. Oh. oh, okay. Hang on a minute. Is this the one where you have to hit the sides three times yes. in the course of your shot? Correct. So that's what you're doing rather than hitting all of the many balls on the table into a specific mm-hmm. spot on the table. You're trying to aim the ball so you can get that like boom, 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 ping. Yes. So you've got – that's precisely right. So you've got what's known as the object balls mm. and you've got your own ball. So you so the point of the game is that you're supposed to hit your ball first, obviously, and your ball needs to hit one of the object balls first. Then it needs to rebound off the table, off oh. the sides of the table, at least three times. Wow. At least. It can be more than that. And then after rebounding off the sides of the table three times, it then needs to hit the red ball at the end. That sounds impossible. It does, doesn't it? That sounds so hard. How? Yeah, precisely. How does anyone play that? <laughs> That's this. So very many things to think about. <laughs> and holy shit, the geometry yes, involved. I exactly. mean, my God. The strategy of thinking about, all right, so if I hit that there, then it's going to hit there, then it's going yeah. to rebound off of that. And then, and you get more points for the more times that the ball mm. rebounds off the sides in between mm. those shots. So okay. if you do one of those shots where it like does a little bounce like four or five times off the side before yeah, it yeah. like crazy. Wow. It's just pure... Pure nuts, right? <laughs> and in Japan as well, because this is where obviously we begin our tale, there's a specific kind of billiards where they play with four balls. Okay. And then you have to get an extra hit? Yeah. Wow. So even crazier still. Right. So how anyone plays billiards is beyond me. Yeah. But good on them. I can, I'm lucky if I can make contact between the white ball and a (laughs) coloured ball. It would take me so much scotch to get good at billiards. (laughs) Way more scotch than I have. And I could never even dream of that on a scotch-fueled fluke. Never. That's hard to say. Scotch-fueled fluke. fluke. It wasn't just a specifically male sport though, right? Mm. Of course, even in Japan, even in the early 20th century, billiards was something that women would play. Yeah. Also socially as well. And so while she was predominantly playing men men in the parlour, there was already some, obviously, some kind of women's league up and running by the late 1920s because she won the Women's Straight Rail Championship at just the age of 15. Wow. So even as a young girl, she's already starting to show absolute prowess. Well, I guess, again, she's playing six to eight hours a day. So I'm sure most of those women are not playing six to eight hours a day. And 15, that sounds young. But at the end of today's tale, I will tell you of some even younger tales. It gets crazier than 15. Okay. So her two sisters also did pretty well for themselves and they also respectively won straight rail championships in alternate years and Katsura went on to tour with one of her sisters across Japan, China and what was then Japanese Taiwan. Wow. So as I said, already getting a name for herself. And so her star continued to rise in Japan and by the time we get to the war years, she's already pretty much a verified billiards star. Now, we've mm. gotten to the war the years. The war years, yeah. So yeah. her biography tends to go a little bit dark around about the war years and we kind of lose track of her, which mm. is not surprising considering mm. what was going on in Japan during yep. the Second World War. Of course. So, of course, for those who don't know, maybe a simplified version of what was happening in Japan at the time. So, and I'll apologise for simplifying Mm. World War II Mm. for everyone. We don't have 17 episodes, so. That's right. We need to move this thing along. So Japan didn't officially really come into the war until 1940 when they signed the Tripartite Pact with Germany and Italy to assist each other if Mm. they were, of course, attacked by any other countries. So this allegiance was, you know, very similar to the allegiance that the Allies had as well. Same sort of thing. And so Japan sent troops into the then French Indochina 
And the US sort of retaliated Mm. with economic sanctions and embargoes. And then, of course, by December of 1941, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor Mm. in Hawaii. Again, I, I realized that this is the simplified and quick version of the history. This, of course, led to then all out war between the US and Japan. And, of course, it ended in not one but two atomic bombs being yeah. dropped on Japan in August of 1945. Now, this whole scenario is horrific. I went to the Peace Memorial Park mm. when I was in Japan and cried from start to finish. You can, I can already see you welling up yeah, just talking exactly. about it Yeah, exactly. So I won't talk about it too much. Mm. But I do think it's really important to know because something that I learned actually while I was there, that those bombs were dropped for a number of reasons and some of those reasons are outrageously fucked. One reason was that the US government had already spent so much money on building the bombs that they felt that if they didn't drop them, the American taxpayer would be a bit shitty. It's like, oh, we've spent all this money on these bombs, we may as well use them. Wow. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. Another reason was because the Soviets were starting to cozy up to the Japanese and the US didn't want the Soviets to get in with the Japanese before they did. So they wanted to make sure that they basically struck out against Japan before the Soviets did or before the Soviets got in there. So... As you can see, or really... It's not necessarily the story that that we've been told about it being... To end the war. To end the war. To prevent the loss of of more more lives. lives. I mean... Definitely you can see how that plays into the story and I don't think that that's a lie. I think that this is genuinely... But it's more complicated than that. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, that's part and parcel of the reasons why Mm. but there's a lot more to it than that. And I don't want to dwell because I will start to cry Mm. if I dwell. I did just really want to touch on that because something else that I think has really been troubling me since I went was this idea that the US is still the only country to have dropped a nuclear weapon on another country in a time of war. Mm. And it did that when it had a president who looked a hell of a lot saner than the president that they currently have. Yeah. So I don't want to make everybody run out to their bomb shelters. I don't want to make everyone into a doomsday prepper. But, hey, maybe doomsday preppers (laughs) aren't as... Aren't (laughs) Aren't as batshit. Maybe they're onto something. Maybe Mm. they're onto something. But the end result of this, of course, was that Japan did surrender. Yeah, yeah. And it did bring the war in Japan to an end. So what this did result in, though, was it meant that the US then moved in and occupied Mm. Japan. And they placed them under a lot of sanctions. Oh, yeah. Huge. Hugely. Mm -hmm. So the sanctions and embargoes that had been in place during the war continued on in the after-war years. Because the Japanese were basically not allowed to have a military after that, were they? So the US became responsible for the defence of Japan because Japan was not allowed to have its own defence force anymore. That's right. So hundreds of thousands of US soldiers Mm. moved into Japan. Mm. Now, this, you can think, obviously, it was an incredibly strange sort of collision of cultures. And the US soldiers were told outright specifically not to fraternize fraternize with the locals, which, of course, as we know, happens in many places. Mm. They're told not to fraternize. Mm. Don't fraternize. But they did. But of course they do. How can you not? How can you not fraternize? I love that word. But how can you not <laughs> how can you not engage or interact of course. with the, the people in the country that you're of living course. with? And so you can also kind of imagine what the American men coming into Japan would have looked like to young Japanese women. Yeah. Women like Katsura. Especially when so much of your country is in not just literal ruins, but its entire economy is also undergoing such an enormous mm. restructuring and some of it is in literal ruins yeah that's what i meant yeah Sometimes like the c- some of the cities of are flattened yeah and then there are all of these economic sanctions which are making it more difficult for people to you know for that economy to revive mm-hmm. itself so why wouldn't you see these you know soldiers as being an option and also because i think they were seen as quite carefree and Mm. liberal and fun and decadent and 
very informal in comparison to the expectations for Japanese men at the time. Also considering that a lot of Japanese men had died in the Mm. war, had gone away to fight. So like with many wars, the ratio of men to women Mm. was out of proportion, Mm. like it always ends up historically after wars. So I think a lot of these American soldiers were a breath of fresh air to these Japanese women. It's interesting though, of course, because they were the enemy. Yes, that's right. That's a really strange thing to consider as well and they're an occupying force. Yeah. And this ended up in thousands and thousands of war brides Mm. um, which happened in many countries, not just Japan, loads of countries and throughout history, but thousands of war brides marrying and going back to the US. Now war brides in in inverted commas obviously. And by the 1950s nearly 50,000 Japanese women had moved to the US yeah. As war brides. But it's also, so the other thing about, I guess, because in the US as well, the Japanese were also considered the enemy. That's right. Because, of course, they're the people who bombed Pearl Harbor. Yeah. And so many thousands and thousands of Japanese Americans had been incarcerated in detention camps under the, you know, suspicion of being spies mm-hmm. or informers. And so then you have all of these Japanese women entering into this it's still pretty hostile. fresh. I'm gonna still say. pretty fresh after the war. Yeah. Hostile environments where they are absolutely the other mm-hmm. and the enemy and are having to come into the lives of the families of these men because yeah. even if the men love them, doesn't mean that their parents or accept their brothers them. and sisters mm. or neighbours are going to accept them. Mm. And that's like double culture shock. It's Pretty full on. And there's actually a documentary called Fall Seven Times Get Up Eight, which is all about following the story of three particular Japanese women who had this exact experience. But you can look that up. That's actually a little bit of a tangent, that particular Mm. film. But the reason that I'm flagging this, the reason that we're talking about this is because this is, of course, the next part of the story, of Katsura's story and her world right now. So this is the world of Japan that she's living in. It's occupied by US forces. It has had those rations and restrictions. And so into this all comes Vernon Greenleaf. Great name. Greenleaf is such a good name. He's an American serviceman. Obviously, stationed at Haneda Air Base in Tokyo. Now, apparently he was out one night playing pool with some of his friends in the servicemen's pool hall. Did he get hustled? Well, no, not quite. (laughs) Um, Did he get shocked? Well, in comes Katsura with her coach, a guy called Matsuyama. So Kinrei Matsuyama was a Japanese billiards superstar Mm. and he had taken – Katsura under his wing in uh, 1937 when he'd seen that she had a hell of a lot of talent Mm. and he'd kind of come on board as her coach. So in they walk to the pool hall and uh, Matsuyuma comes up to Vernon and his mates and says, oh, look, I don't suppose you'd mind if my lady friend here just used the table for just her standard two hours of practice that Uh she needs every day. (laughs) Um, And I don't suppose it would be all right if maybe you guys played her, you know, just just, just for her practice. Just for practice. Just humour her. Just humour her. Just Just, for fun. Just, yeah. And so (laughs) in my mind's eye, I kind of imagine like Vernon sidling Mm, up to her. I'll uh, doing like the you want to play little I lady guess. yeah <laughs> doing maybe a little bit of the old uh leaning over oh let me show you how to hold that cue yeah. there love yeah you know hey. you know how they do that they just yeah. get around you with that yeah uh-huh. we've all had that haven't yeah. we yeah <laughs> yeah so you know thinking that he's uh going to give her a few pointers on, mm. on how to play the game and of course as you can imagine she proceeded to thrash him thrash them <laughs> blow them out of the water amaze them with her prowess and skill and, of course, smash them completely. Yeah. So much so that he asked if maybe she could teach him how to play. Oh. <laughs> so oh, she – Exactly. So she took him on as a student in order to teach him <laughs> – order to teach him a thing or two about pool. Now, the romance blossomed from there and by 1950 they were married. Shortly after this, Vernon got the call back to San Francisco – he was getting transferred back to America. And so, of course, Katsura packs up her bags and goes with him and enters, as we said, into this very different world of yeah. the US. She speaks very little English. 
So can Vernon speak Japanese? He can speak, yes, he can speak enough Japanese at least to obviously communicate yeah. with her. Yeah. And he's been there for a few years as well, so obviously yeah. he's picked up a thing or two. Um, she's got, as I said, very little English but probably a lot more English than most Americans would have had Japanese. Yeah. So, yeah. But <laughs> it's a world that she's gone into on her own, just with him. Mm. Like this is the thing, you know, these women leave behind their families, their friends, everything they know yep. to and pick up and start in a whole new place. Totally different cultures as well. And a culture where you are, as you said before, you're still pretty much the enemy. Pearl Harbor is very, very, very recent yep. in everyone's memory and most people still reeling from the, mm. from the losses and the devastation mm-hmm. of the war. So she comes into this world and now while we've also painted this picture obviously of like quite a bit of hostility, there are also obviously millions of Americans that were very happy to also welcome people into their country. I'm not trying to paint yeah, everyone absolutely. as the bad yeah. guy. <laughs> and for Katsura, she had the added benefit, of course, of being very interesting and very novel as being a female mm. billiards player. So, a, a what? Huh? She's got boobs and they don't get in the way of the How does it work? How could it be done? (laughs) Well, billiards was incredibly popular, of course, in the US, but interest had waned a bit during the war because, well... All the men were gone? All the men were gone. (laughs) The big players were enlisted to fight and their audience were enlisted to fight. So after the war... I guess the interest in billiards was picking up again. And as I mentioned before, of course, she was also under the tutelage of Matsuyama, who mm-hmm. had an international name for himself as a right. billiards Right, so player. they knew him in the US as yes. well. Yes, yep. yeah, yeah. Okay. And he was talking her up. Her name was getting around. So before she'd even come to the mm. US, another retired American player, Welker Cochran, who was an eight-times world champion and he owned a pool room in San Francisco, he had heard about her on the grapevine. He had a son who was working in Tokyo at the time as a naval signalman. So he asked his son to go and check her out, mm. see if she was any good. And he sent back word that, yeah. well, dad, actually, yeah, I actually. think she, I think she's even better than you. Oh, Which, of course, Hold he up. would not have been very happy about. <laughs> and, of course, she's going to be good by now mm. because she's in her 30s now, right? She's yes. been playing for a long time. She's Japan's only professional female billiards player. So she's gone professional in Japan before she gets here. She's come second in the national champions three times by now. And she's... Wait, against other women or against men? Men. Ooh. So she's playing loads of exhibition games. Mm -hmm. She's showing trick shots and running upwards of 10,000 points a game in straight rail. Right? I, I so remember how that we mentioned that. Good. We mentioned. How, remember how we mentioned those points? Yeah. yeah. So in, in an exhibition game, when you don't have to like stop your set to let somebody else play, and you just keep going, like those are the points she was getting, like ten thousand. <laughs> wow. Because a normal game would be like fifty, sixty something points. Really. For a game. And she's getting 10,000. I feel like someone is going to correct me on my interpretation of billiards. Maybe. Um, let them. But let them. <laughs> Come at me. And I will apologise for getting it wrong. Um, but, I mean, no wonder, right? No yeah. wonder words got around about how great she is. So Welker Cochran was interested in getting her onto the circuit. And the board was basically like, well, look, if you want to invite her to play with the men, that's that's on you, buddy. That's your prerogative. You can if you want. Sure, but they were actually, you know, they were basically like, we'll let her. If oh, okay. you want to, we'll cool. let her. And he was like, yeah, we want to let her. She's the one. We're going to let her. She's the chosen one of billiards. <laughs> she's the chosen people. She's the chosen one. She's the messiah <laughs> of billiards. So I think what happens is she gets remembered a lot as the first woman ever to be included in any world billiards tournament. And that's a little bit of a misnomer, mm. I think, or a little, a little bit misleading because women's billiards, as I said, was already mm-hmm. a thing. In fact, in Australia, we'd had our own women's world champion professional in the early 1900s. We had Ruby Roberts, just so you know, from Melbourne, I believe. And there was also Ruth McGuinness, who was an American. And I imagine that is this part of the thing about billiards can be a relatively respectable sport because it doesn't require too much physical, you know, it's not going to upset your feminine decorum because you're not running or sweating or sprinting or jumping or hitting. You're just... 
it's strategic yeah. and it's yeah. careful and it's you can play it in a skirt. Yeah, um, yeah, I think you're right. So it doesn't really upset sensibilities, does yeah, it? Yeah, I think you're right. And because I think as well, like there's actual footage you can see, like silent film footage from the early 1900s of Japanese women playing billiards mm. in their kimonos. Right, right, wow. So and playing socially against men in kimonos. Yeah. So it can still be a, a sport that women can play without, as you said, you know, stepping outside of those realms of femininity. Mm. And, in fact, that's going to play into that idea mm. of the kimono is going to play into Katsura's story okay. momentarily as well. So, as I said, there's also Ruth McGuinness. She was an American and she'd played in a men's championship in 1942. But that wasn't quite at world level, right? So, really... She was the first woman to be included in a men's world championship. Okay, yeah. So, so she's, she's an international yes, player. Yes. So yeah. she's not she's not actually the first woman to professionally play billiards, mm. but in this at that pa- level. But in this particular world men's level, mm. this is where mm. she steps in, and this is where she she gets this title of the first woman of billiards. Yeah. Right? Okay. So she was invited to play in the World Three Cushion Billiards Championship in 1952 in San Francisco. So this caused a pretty big sensation, as you can imagine, and tickets sold like hotcakes. Wow. So basically in the end, leaving standing room only. Huh. So added to this, as I just mentioned, the kimono, was also some smart though fairly awkward marketing strategy. <laughs> oh, no. So Don't tell me that it involves – does it involve like – what we would now consider to be maybe exoticizing yeah. and yeah. fetishizing yeah. her Japanese. Precisely. That's precisely correct. Yeah. So apparently it was the wife of a chap named Ted Zimmerman, who was a pool cue manufacturer, who hit on the idea of making a bit more of a spectacle out of Katsura. And Ted Zimmerman's wife's name is lost to history. Mm, and I guess it's enough that she's Ted Zimmerman's wife. <laughs> That's how we shall know her. But she was very good with the sewing machine. So apparently she whipped up some commodities Kimonos uh-huh. for Katsura to wear. Uh-huh. And this uh-huh. made her into... Making me feel uncomfortable already. <laughs> I mean, she was Japanese. She can wear a kimono. Of course, she can wear a kimono, but I'm wondering where did Ted's wife get the kimono patterns from? <laughs> so, but you're right. It's a very fetishized way of mm. thinking about it. And it is, there is that element of the exotic uh-huh. here and playing up on it. But it worked, right? As a marketing tool, it massively worked because who doesn't want to go and see a petite because she was small right Mm. she she, so many things talk about how petite and little and light she was of course you know her like all sports women her appearance is very important um (sighs) but she was this petite little feminine thing in a kimono Mm. playing pool against all the big guys it just it just yeah, I feel very much in two minds about this because what I really hope is that she is wearing the kimono very proudly and is empowered by that and empowered by her culture and who she is and I hope that that is the case but there's also that other part of me that's just like, oh, it just makes me feel yucky <laughs> because, look, we know the history of white men and the fetishizing of Asian women. And it's frankly pretty gross a lot of the time. And especially when you're talking about those issues of the way that she's being talked about as being petite and little. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's emphasizing those kinds of feminine, I say in, in quotation mark qualities that do play into the fetishizing of Asian women so Mm -hmm. often. Mm -hmm. You know, and but I think that this was also part and parcel of making those women acceptable in an American context, in mm, a US culture mm. as well. Because, you know, as we said before, they were the enemy. Yeah. And how could you position them in a way where they might be accepted by the broader populace, yeah. and, right? And I guess the thing is it's someone who is smaller than everybody else who's going to fucking beat them and mm. who is amazing and so talented and is going to whip their asses. Yeah, I think there's so many layers to this. But the other thing about this as well is I think that this idea of 
how female billiard players are presented actually feeds through to current day contemporary Mm. billiard players. Mm. And we'll come to that, I think, a little bit more at the end of the episode because we're getting to the world championships now. So at the time of the championship, one of the all-time greats of the game was coming towards the end of his career. And this was an American billiard player named William Hoppy. Now, the fact that he was also coming to the end of his career was also generating a bit of interest in billiards as well because everybody Uh wanted to see the the shining star before he went out. And he went on to retire in 1952, just shortly after Mm. all of this happened. He'd won 51 world titles between 1906 and 1952. When that's he retired, a lot. Which is quite a lot. So that's over a span of nearly 40 years. It's impressive stuff. 51. Yeah, wow. And also he played uh, an exhibition match of Pool in the White House in like the early 1900s as well. Of course he did. As you do. Of course he did. So he was one of the all-time He's greats. the guy. He's the guy. He's the pool guy. Yeah. Right? The pool guy. He's the pool guy. Well, actually, he's the billiards guy. Yeah. He's not the pool guy. It was really shaping up to one of Hoppy's last ever games in the World Three Cushion Billiard Championship Tournament. So it was described by the New York Times as some of the most brilliant billiards of his long career. And he ended up defeating Katsura. Oh, no! 50 to 30. Our heroine. Our heroine. Falls defeated. To the all-time, to the, the, all-time the guy. Great. The guy. But she ended up placing seventh out of ten of Respect- the players. Which is respect? No, fucking of course it's respectable. Um, And she also unseated a guy called Ray Kilgore who was supposed to be the next big thing. She also had to play against Matsuyama, her mentor, Mm. and he actually just nudged her out as well. So she, the mentor won. But she went on to compete in the next two years as well of championships, finishing fifth and then fourth. So she progressed. She yes, got better and very better. good. But after this particular 1952 championship, she went on to do exhibition tours with Welka Crockerin and also with Hoppy, who came out of retirement to do the exhibition games against oh, her wow. as well. Ooh. So sadly, though, by the end of 1953, Matsuyuma died from a heart attack. Oh. And she lost the mentor who'd always been by her side. She did go on to play, as I said, for another year, coming fourth in the championships, but she disappeared off the radar after that for a while. And I actually wonder if this had something to do with the fact that Mm. Matsuyuma had passed away. You know, this was her mentor. It was her... And I wonder, like, father figure as well, yeah. seeing as how her, she lost her own dad when she was so young. Absolutely. And still as someone who is still functioning basically as a foreigner yeah. in the US, as I guess that point of contact that brought her out of herself, mm. uh, that familiarity that would have helped her to move in this world yeah. in which she was an outsider, with him gone, I wonder if that affected her to the point where she didn't, have the courage or the confidence or the desire to move back into that world Mm. without him. Mm. During this time that she had off, she did write a couple of books in Japanese on billiards. Oh, yeah, of course, of course, of course. Like nonfiction, like how-to billiards guides? Yes, how-to billiards guides. Okay, Um, not like a murder mystery set in a billiard hall. (laughs) With the pool cue in the billiard room. Um, (laughs) No, not quite like that. Although I couldn't tell you because they're in Japanese, so I can't read them. (laughs) I wouldn't have a clue. But she did come back into the limelight in the late 50s to hold further exhibition matches again. And she played in 58, 59 and 61. And she actually also appeared on television shows in that time as well as herself, like on... Mm, um, Doing exhibition type stuff? Like, look at these trick shots. I'm amazing. Pretty much. Although I think she also presented something about stunt wagons in westerns on something. (laughs) Random. Ah, That's so good. So she she was in and out of the spotlight in that sort of late 50s, early 60s period, but then again disappeared Mm. again. So she's popped up, but she's quickly gone away again. Because she never had children, did she? No. Greenleaf and Katsura never had children. And he actually died in 1967. Oh, no, that's not – he wasn't – mustn't have been very old then either. No. So – this period of her life, much like those sort of war years, again is a bit of a dark spot. We don't mm. know too much about what happened. But we do know that in 1976, now 63 years old, she did pop up briefly at a surprise appearance at the Palace Billiards in San Francisco and borrowed a pool cue and ran 100 points straight 
with ease wow. on the billiards table. Just like <laughs> randomly just like, hey, I'm here. Give me a cue. Let's go. Yeah. Cool. So pretty much stunned everyone, yeah. blew them away, and then again like shuffled back into the shadows. <laughs> so, yeah, it really kind of became a bit of a, a shadowy, enigmatic mm. figure towards the end of her life. But that same year, actually, in 1976, that was the year that the Women's Professional Billiard Association was established in the US. And Katsura was one of the first Hall of Fame inductees alongside Ruth McGuinness, who I mentioned before, Mm -hmm. who'd actually died in 1974, and another pool shark called Dorothy Wise as well. So... In 1976, this time for real and the very last one, she didn't do a Fonzie after this. <laughs> We've mentioned Fonzie before. If you don't know that that's an Australian pop star who's very old who keeps going into retirement and coming back out again. That's right. So she made no more comebacks mm. after this. And in the early 90s, she moved back to Japan to live with her sister and then she passed away in 1995 in her 80s. Aww. So since... Katsura's time. Obviously, there's been huge strides in women's billiards. Mm. And some of, so I mentioned before, some of the really young females in the sport. So in the 1960s, there was Jean Belukas. Well, she actually went on to play for a very, very long time. But she was an absolute prodigy. She started playing exhibitions at six. Oh, whoa. You can actually find footage of her on television shows. A television show called, oh, it's got like a really dodgy title, like <laughs> What's My Secret or I Have a Secret or <laughs> something something really questionable like that. But you can find footage of her on this like show. Like the 60s version of clickbait. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's wrong. Um, but you can find footage of her shooting like such an amazing pool shark. On You can just Google that and find it when she's six. And she went on to become a superstar of the sport, placing fifth in the 1969 US Open straight pool championships when she was nine years nine old. Nine years old? She placed fifth? Yeah. Wow. And then she finally won it for the first time at the age of 12. Well, I mean, she's, hey, 12. she's really getting on by then. I know. It's time. If, it's you don't, time. if you can't win it by the time you're 12, why are you even Get bothering? out. Yeah. Stop. Go so, home. But I think that that sort of, you know, that idea brings us to that kind of discussion about the gender of this sport, right? Yeah. Okay. And so why are there separate divisions? Yes. This is, this is the why question. Why are there separate divisions? Why are there even it's, separate divisions, right? It's not right? a game that, I mean, I guess the reason why so many other sports are divided is just simply because of the differences in physiology between men and women. Yep. This is it, isn't it? Yeah. And pool, billiards, all of those games don't really require. That's not what it's about. Yeah, the strength of the body. It's about strategy. It's yeah. about yeah. your ability to perform minute geometry on a <laughs> on a table yeah uh, precisely and it's not even like just sort of straight pool i guess where when you need to break the balls up on yeah. the table to begin with you should Might do a bit it of you know, strength yeah exactly like not that it, that probably makes any difference whatsoever <laughs> but this is that question right that keeps coming up around and i guess it's similar with things like chess you know mm. like why yeah, why, why are there separate earth? divisions in chess <laughs> exactly so this is the question Oy. and i was looking on the world pool billiard association's website to see if i could find any definitive uh-huh. answers to this question right why you are looking at the questions that we all want answers to <laughs> exactly but i couldn't find any answers but i did discover that there's a wheelchair division though as well so that's inclusive Mm -hmm. but i couldn't find anything specific about why we've got this split so i read through their rules and this was something i found really interesting was i discovered that in the rules women are only referred to um in a short section about dress code right just letting Um, you know i mean there's there's a men's section about dress code as well but also the only time women are referred to is in that directly is in the dress code section. And then the rest of the of the rules defer to that sort of universal he, right? As you do. Oh. So rules Right, we're still using the universal he. Are yeah, we? yeah, yeah. Okay. So the rules like, for example, I quote, if a player is late for his pointed match time, he will have 15 minutes to report to his assigned table mm. ready to play or he will lose the match. Mm. Now, this makes me wonder, right, if a woman turns up late for her match, <laughs> can she not fucking argue that there's nothing there's in nothing the rules, the rules she. that says she can't do that? Because <laughs> that's what I would do. I'd yeah, turn up would. and be like, well, I'll, if you read through the rules, I think you'll find that <laughs> I'm not no mentioned. Mention. <laughs> I can do whatever I want because that only applies to him. <laughs> like, 
Oh, and, man. And the only rule the only rule I have to follow as a woman is that, you know, my skirt needs to go below the knee. That's pretty much the only and, rule. That, and I'm sure that that is in place so that when you're bending over the table, you're not distracting exposing. your opponent. Yeah. But this plays into, I think, that idea again of presentation, right, mm. how women are, are seen in the sport. And there's – I guess there's loads of reasons why – there's still this division. I guess one of those reasons is that money as well plays into this, right? Mm. And one of the other reasons why women have taken so long to come to the sport professionally is the fact that monetary incentives for women to play at a professional level just haven't really existed. And again, is this because of that division of men's competitions versus women's competitions yeah, and yeah. having different prize That's, pools? Yeah, so the prize purse. So, for example, right, in 1980 there was a 32-women player field at the Nine Ball World Pro-Am in Las Vegas and the – prize pool, the prize purse that they managed to nail down for that was $5,000. By contrast, the men's division offered a first place prize purse of $25,000, right? Mm. So why would a woman put her life on hold, spend the amount of money that she might win if Uh, she was to win to go... Just getting there. Just getting there to compete. Like... There's no incentive yeah. for women to put their lives on hold to, yeah. to do that, right? And Which is also the case in, in so very many sports. In so very anyway. many sports. This yeah. is the difference. Yeah. You, you can't afford to go pro because there's no money to be made mm. in going pro. Mm-hmm. Other things as well, you know, women's games were usually, I think this is changing now definitely, but they used to be usually televised in like the wee small mm. hours of the Three morning. in the morning slot. Exactly. Yeah. If they were televised at all. And not to mention, of course, like the role of family in all of this. Yeah. Billiards was traditionally a game that was played, you know, in smoky pubs. Where men in the congregate yeah, exactly. after work in the, yeah. you know. And yeah. would respectable women go there? No, they're at home looking after the children at that time of night. You know, like this is obviously a very stereotypical. And dated these and days. That's right. But this is the world of at least that 1950s, 1960s. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. World that Katsura was working mm. in, right? But. You know, like most things, slowly changing. In 1986, Gloria Walker became the uh, national champion while she was five months pregnant. Oh, wow. Which is pretty impressive. So I guess things are shifting and changing, but it's a really interesting sport to look at in terms of all the different aspects that we think about in terms of women's sports Mm. and how it applies, I think, on so many levels to this particular sport, including that idea as we touched on before, of presentation, of looks, of yeah. sex appeal. And if you do a general Google of like female billiards players, then you're going to get search results that are like sexiest women billiard players, you know, like yeah, the right. hottest billiard players. Really? Like, yeah, in most beautiful lady Still. pool players. Wow. Yes, 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 yes. Which is, I guess, true of a lot of sports still. Mm-hmm. But a lot of, again, a lot of that stuff is changing. And if you look at something like football, though. Mm. Female footballers in Australia are, are not presented in that way. In that even though sexualized way. I remember, oh, I don't know, maybe it was 10 years ago or so, I think they did it in the US with gridiron, but there was like the lingerie yes. gridiron. And I think that they there tried was, to bring that over was, here. Exactly. There was yeah. talks of having that mm-hmm. here as well. And that's the type of thing that doesn't fly anymore. Yeah. Like we won't accept that. We're like, no, no, no. Like women should play football properly and be respected for that abilities rather than their sexy bodies but at the same time i'm not against women leaning into their sex appeal well this is if that's the thing that they choose to do because that's how they choose to present themselves and that's empowering for them but it shouldn't be used as a marketing tool put on them by others yeah well this is one of those paradoxes right Mm. Of, of the sport is that a lot of players do play up that sex appeal, you know, and a lot of players you'll find do in those photos they are wearing yeah. low cut, low hey, cut tops, it's tight pants. It's fun to do heels. that. It's fun to be exactly. sexy, and it can be really empowering to do that. But again, it's that where is the line, and where yeah. is that? 
the drive coming from? So one of the top sort of professional American players is Jeanette Lee and she's also known as the Black Widow and she's very sexy. Like mm. she wears very sexy sort of clothes. There's also a Swedish billiards player called Eva Mattia Lawrence and she's known as the Striking Viking. Oh. Yeah, because she's Swedish. <laughs> Get course. it? Yeah, yeah, of course. It's pretty yeah. good, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and I think she might actually have appeared in Playboy. Now, I don't know if that was in an article about her pool playing or if it was the centrefold, actually. I didn't find it. But she and Lee have actually appeared in photos together, very Mm -hmm. sexily clad publicity shots. Oh, and Eva, on a side note, she was a technical advisor on The Colour of Money. Uh, which is a film I now desperately want to rewatch. Oh, after okay. Doing all of this billiards, <laughs> all this billiards research. I'm like, yeah, Tom Cruise, watch that. <laughs> mm, young Tom Cruise. Um, <laughs> just got to clarify. Oh, clarify. Clarify. It's important. That. It's yeah, important it to clarify important. that. Yeah. But anyway, the current world champ is from Norway, uh, Linne Kvorsvik. I'm saying that so wrong, I'm sure. And she's closely followed by Karen Kaur of Northern Ireland, who's Fucking great because she looks like everyone's mum, to be honest. Like, <laughs> she's just such a mum. But, yeah, I guess it is one of those sports where that sex appeal is still a part of yeah. of the way the sport is thought about. Yeah, yeah, You yeah. know? Yeah. Of the, the sexy woman in the pool hall hustling you, mm. you know, that has played into the professional yeah. kind of stance. Yeah. And, yeah, these women are sexy. And I think mm. that... I do honestly believe in women being sexy and owning their sexuality Absolutely. in that way. Yeah. It is, yeah, I guess it's borderline, isn't it? I, don't, I, I, I actually don't know what to say about it. No. Other than I think it's one of those, yeah, as I said, I guess it's just one of those sort of paradoxes of, of mm. the sport. But I don't think there's a, I don't think there's anything wrong or bad about it. Yeah. As long as I the, think as long as they're as still as, being respected as and as long as the women players. are yeah and as long as the women are driving the decisions yes. that they make. That's right. Which I think is probably a little bit different to Katsura's time yes. when some decisions may have possibly I can't again we can't prove it but mm. may have been the decisions were made for her. I think it's probably more likely that that was the case. Yeah. 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 But I just wanted to sort of also end on a little quote from an American Billy player named Emily Duddy um, and how she sees the idea of gender in the game. And she says, essentially women are now playing catch up to men because men have had continuous access to pool halls and competition. This contributes to men outnumbering women and outplaying them. It will be a slow progression, but the scales are moving towards equality. Mm. So Mm. again, like every fucking sport, man. Yeah. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see if that gender divide does remain in this sport in yeah, the future. In 10 or 20 years. Or if it does become more of a mixed yeah. game. And if we do see more men and women playing side by side in championships. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. And I don't know enough. I'm not an expert enough on the sport no. to be able to have any prediction as to that whatsoever. I would be really interested if anybody does know why the gender separation does exist. If there is a good reason for it, there very well may be a very mm. good reason for having separate men's and women's divisions in billiards. If anyone knows, please let us know. Yeah. Uh, but it does definitely seem like it's one of those ones like chess where it's like, but why? <laughs> Actually, surely we're on a level playing field yeah. here. A friend of mine, her daughter who is eight, maybe eight, I think she must be eight by now, she uh, recently won a chess tournament <gasps> against many other boys and girls. Good job. I know. How cute is that? That's amazing. So good. I don't know if I knew how to play. I didn't know how to play chess when I was eight. No. (laughs) So nerdy. I love it. Yeah. But anyway, um, that brings us to the end of our story. Well, great. I learned a lot about billiards that I did not know. I kind of feel like going out and playing billiards Yeah. I wouldn't actually want to play billiards. I'd probably play pool. I'd like to give billiards a try. I think I'll suck shit at it. I think I won't be able to hear anything in <laughs> any order whatsoever, but I'd be willing to give it a shot. Yeah, you could start with just trying to get one bounce and hitting a ball. Hit a ball, get a bounce and hit another ball. Yeah, move on from Let's there. Let's see if you can do that. Yeah. But that's it for another week. Wow. Another week done. Gone. Time. It flies. It's passed. It's already September. Oh, don't even, man. Yeah. Wow. Where is the time gone? Isn't that though 
just something that everybody says all the time. Aren't you tired of people saying like, oh my God, I can't believe it's September. Yeah, but it's true. I know it is. It's like the way that everyone's like, oh, it's so cold. And you're like, yes. Yes, yes, it is. is. (laughs) Correct. Oh, it's September. Yes. Yes, it is. That's correct. Uh, Thank you, Captain Obvious. But it's correct. But we are we haven't been in the quote unquote studio together, which is of course my dining room table in my living room with some blankets on the wall <laughs> for a while. It's been like two months. It's been a while, but that's all right. We're back at it. We're raring to go, and we hope that you will join us again, again in another time. fortnight. Do we have any idea where we're going in another fortnight? Uh, yes, I do. Ooh, any hints? Any we're going to go to Weimar Republic. Oh, now. It's everybody's favourite time and place. Now, it? you want to get out of it before it ends, right? Oh, yeah. You want to be out. Look, there's a, f- a couple of good years there, but it doesn't <laughs> last for long. It doesn't last for long, but those years where it was good. <laughs> they were good. They were good. Even despite the fact that the economy was a fucking disaster, <laughs> no one had any money, but men, If you wanted to party. They have a fucking good time because they were like, they were partying like end of the world partying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know? That's why you need to get out before yeah. those, those years end. Yeah. Well, good. I'm looking forward to so that. That's where we're going next week. Terrific. And in the meantime, of course, we have, as we mentioned at the top of the show, we have got new Patreon content out, which is a nicely linked back to our last guest episode, which was very clever of me to link that together, wasn't it? How clever. And you can join us on Patreon for as little as $2 a month and we would love to see you there. We also have lots of other extra episodes. We have bloopers. We have behind-the-scenes content. We – oh, gosh, gosh, there's oh, so much but stuff. Don't we have? Yeah. A lot. Lots of things we don't have. (laughs) If you'd like to support us um, in other ways, you can also purchase T-shirts and pins on our Etsy store. Or if you can't afford to support us financially, please leave us a review and subscribe on iTunes and tell your friends or shout us out on social media. We love love it when we appear in your stories. We want to share them on our page, tweet at us, whatever. Just do it. At Deviant Women. And as always, thanks to Brendan Davies for the sound. And to India Hui for the music. And to Dan, executive producer. That's all from us. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.